The scripture reading this morning is from Matthew chapter 28. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with great fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Good morning. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 16. It's Mark chapter 16. We finish the book of Mark this morning. We've been there for a while, just making our way through, and it, uh, we really started with the book of Mark uh, in our Bible studies. Before we were even meeting as a church, we did the first eight chapters on Thursday nights in Carl Fry Park, or Thursday nights here in the, the room across the way, and look what the Lord has done in such a small amount of time. It's such an exciting thing that God does. It's good to pause and reflect on those things. So Mark chapter 16 verses uh, 1 through 8 is where the sermon will be primarily from uh, this morning. I was in high school when uh, one of the first times in my life I really remember uh, being kind of severely made fun of for my faith in Jesus. And the thing that the kid said to me was, you Christians just believe in this dumb book that you found in the desert. And they just found it and now you believe it. Well, here's the thing about my high school friend. He had no idea what he was talking about. See, the Bible did not just get found in the desert somewhere, and then someone started reading it, and then we were like, oh, we should believe this, like to the point of death. That's not what happened. There's no time in the Bible's history where all of a sudden it was lost, and then somehow it later became found. Even when you hear things like about like the Dead Sea Scrolls of copies of the Bible that are found in caves that, that, that are ancient copies being found, they're not finding anything new. What they're finding is older copies of those manuscripts that then they're matching up and they're testifying to the authenticity of the scriptures that they're saying, look, they match up. They're the same thing. Because what actually happened, uh, in particular for the New Testament, how you got your Bible is the life of Jesus occurred. He lived, he died, he rose again from the dead, and then his apostles had various acts that they followed through. And then people who spent time with Jesus personally began to tell these true stories of what Jesus had done. And these men then started to write those down. 
those stories that had happened. And that's how you got Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and the book of Acts. These are recorded history of people passing down the things that they had seen Jesus do, or shortly after his ascension into heaven, that's the book of Acts, that they saw happen. And they're, they're there in the lifetime, in the moment of Jesus. And what would happen is, is that they would then make copies of, of those recorded records, that story that was being told. And then you have the book of, from like 1 Corinthians in your Bible to the book of Jude. Those are all called epistles. They're letters written to specific churches from men and inspired by the Holy Spirit, these apostles who are writing to churches, telling them how does the story of Jesus apply to everyday church life. And then finally, the book of Revelation was written by the apostle John and given us that, that revelation. And what would happen is as they got these, this authoritative word from God, from these people, they would start making copies of those original copies. And they would make copies of those copies, and make copies of those copies, and make copies of those copies, and copies and copies and copies and copies and copies. And you had this plethora of copies being made and passed out to churches. And then they would be able to authenticate what was true and what was not there. And that's how we got the Bible. And they began to then codify and put these in a thing called codex. So instead of a scroll, you started to have the first book that had a binding. And that was the early church. That was not for Christians bringing together their copies of the New Testament that they're bringing in and putting in a single binding here. That's one of the first main uh, circulated things that we see that we now call a book. And that's why our book, books now have bindings. Instead, they had scrolls before that time. And that's how the Bible gets to us. It's these copies of copies of copies and copies. Now, why am I talking about that as we look at the end of the book of Mark? Well, if you look in your copy of God's Word, I'm guessing that you probably have something in brackets right above verse 9 that says some of the earliest manuscripts do not include 16, 9 through 20. Yeah, do you see that? You can nod if you see that in your Bible. Okay, most of you do have that. The reason why that is there is because of those copies and those copies and those copies of copies is in the earliest forms of those manuscripts, we don't have those verses 9 through 20. It seems like they came in a little bit later. That they are then added later to the book of Mark, because what we're going to see is for, for a lot of us, as we would look at verse 8, and we'd say, well, that's not a very good way to end off the gospel. They're afraid and tell no one about the resurrection of Jesus. But I would say, it seems from that evidence, from those manuscripts and those copies of copies and copies, is that that is how Mark ended his gospel. That he ended at verse 8. Now, verses 9 through 20, I don't think they're just coming out of nowhere. For example, if you look at verses 12 through 13, they talk about two disciples who uh, Jesus appeared to him on a road. If you go to Luke um, 24, verses 13 to 34, I think you see a a greater and deeper account of that. And so the things in 9 through 20 are testified about in other gospels. So they're not necessarily untrue, but I don't think they're a part of the original. So we're going to stick to verses 1 through 8 today. Now, for some of you, you might be thinking, you mean there's something in my Bible that wasn't there? Perhaps it was added? And I want to give an illustration that I hope encourages you in your faith and the reality of this. Imagine if you owned a really prestigious art museum. In that museum, you had priceless pieces of art hanging on the walls. And because you have these priceless pieces of art hanging on the walls, you develop a security system. And they bring in, and it's the high line, it's the best of security that you can find. 
and you find somebody was trying to sneak their piece of art into your museum and your security system caught them, would you then assume that all the other pieces of art in the museum are false, not able to be trusted, aren't true? Or if someone caught you trying to, someone tried to steal them and take them away? And that's what I want to suggest the kind of testimony we have as Christians, that it's not just one single uh, a copy that is the quote-unquote original, and that's how we know that that's what's true, but rather we have this hundreds of copies that we get to look forward and compare to. It gives us a better security system because we have hundreds, and I mean literally hundreds of these early manuscripts being passed around throughout the local church, testified to and, and being affirmed by the community of faith that existed at that time, we can know and we catch when people are trying to add to the Word of God, even when it's things like Mark 9 through 20, which aren't necessarily inherently bad or disagree with the rest of the testimony of Scripture, but just don't seem to be there, we know that it wasn't there because the security system caught it. What I want to say is we should have more confidence in the Bible and its authenticity and that it is the very Word of God because of brackets like these in your Bibles. That there are times if you look in your Bible, there will be little notes here and they'll say some manuscripts don't have this word or this phrase. Because yes, in that copying system, mistakes did happen. Sometimes a copyist would be writing and they'd be writing and they'd be writing and they would skip a line by accident and they would just keep writing and writing and writing and they didn't really realize it. Sometimes they, like you, would make a typo. Sometimes they, like you, would make a mistake. But because we have so many copies, we know when they made mistakes, and we can trace that back through the record and say, whoops, this is where they got off. This is what's accurate, and this is what's true. And that's what Bible translators use to translate and give you the Word of God so that you know you can have the real deal. So coming clean and showing our hand that verses 9 through 20 maybe weren't really there is to meant to encourage your faith, to encourage your belief in the authenticity of the Scriptures. So that's my little aside. That's why I'm not going to preach through 9 through 20. And we're going to end our study of the book of Mark at verse 8. Uh, if you have more questions about those things, I'd love to talk to you. I want to encourage you, your faith. I want to strengthen it. But we're not trying to hide anything in some kind of dirty closet of saying, oh, we can't let them know that there's this problem with the Bible. Like, there's, it's not a problem. We've reconciled the problem. That's the whole point of these brackets is that they're there. And you can have a lot of faith and courage that the words that you do have in front of you are good and right and authoritative for life. So that, let me pray, and then we'll jump into our sermon for the morning of Mark 1 through 8. Dear Heavenly Father, God, we love you. And Lord Jesus, we thank you for the word of God, the word of God that testifies to the truth. You prayed for us, Christ. You prayed for, for followers that would come after. And you prayed that we might be sanctified in the truth, that we might be made holy by the truth. And then you said to the Father, Father, your word is true. God, you have, have meticulously overseen the transmission of the scriptures so that we today in central Ohio might open them up and read with confidence that the tomb is empty and that you have risen from the dead. And in the same way you supernaturally protected the word of God, you supernaturally and literally raised Jesus from the dead. This is not a metaphorical resurrection, but a literal re resurrection. And we are so thankful, God, that that is true, and that he is raised, and that one day we will also be literally raised with him and ushered into glory forever. 
because he is the word, the word made flesh to us. The fulfillment of the revelation of God is in Christ Jesus. So God, I pray for illumination this morning, that you might open our eyes to see things we haven't seen from the scriptures, that you might open our hearts to impact us and change us as we look to the reality of the scriptures of Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. And ask this all in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Well, before I read our verses this morning, I do want to tell you what the sermon is going to be about. going to come at you right from the beginning. I believe that Jesus was risen from the dead so that he might be worshipped. What God has done in Christ is that he, so that he might receive all glory and honor and praise forever and evermore from people from every tribe, language, and nation all over the world that one day they will gather around the throne and worship Jesus because he's the wor- lamb who's worthy to be slain and he is the one who conquered sin and death. That is going to be our our main focus as we walk through this. And in that, we're going to see three truths. Three truths that we see in this passage about the resurrection. And then I'm going to take from those an application for each one of how that makes us a better worshiper of God. My prayer is that we will leave here convinced, encouraged by the resurrection of Jesus, and that we will leave here knowing how those truths about the resurrection impact everyday life and make you a true worshiper of Christ. So picking up in verse 1, chapter 16. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Well, we want to take a look first at these first four verses that we want to see that Jesus was risen by God. We look at these women who I think are a wonderful picture of worshipers. They're in love with Jesus. Now, I don't think they really understand what's happening, uh, and, and, and neither did any of the disciples. It's, we see in the New Testament, they don't really get it until after they see the resurrected Lord. And so they think Jesus has died, but they still really love him, and they want to honor him. And so they don't even wait for the Sabbath to, uh, to, to be like the next day, but they'd wait for it to be over because the Jewish Sabbath would run from uh, sun up to sun down. And about, I don't know, roughly an hour after sun down, they would start to open up some shops again just, just before kind of closing up for the night. So, you know, it would start on Friday evening as the sun set, and then Sabbath day would return, or it would be over on Saturday when the sun set again. And so it says right after the Sabbath, there in the first verse, that on that Saturday, that, and very early, or excuse me, that they bought spices, that they might go and anoint him, that when the Sabbath had passed. And what I'm saying is, they're not even waiting. 
They're trying to go as soon as they can while still honoring God. And so the moment that Sabbath day is over, they're out and they're buying these spices. Spices that were actually told in the book of John that Nicodemus already went and he already anointed the body of Jesus. But they love Jesus. And then maybe they don't trust Nicodemus. I don't know. These ladies, they're going to make sure that they did it right because, you know, when a guy does it, they always mess it up, right? I'm not really sure. But they're going to go and they're going to make sure that Jesus' body gets anointed. And they're not going to wait And then, very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. That as soon as the sun rises, so they can see, again, this is long before electricity, the ability to do this, they're at the tomb. And they want to be there as soon as they can, so they might anoint the body of Jesus, because they love him and they desire him. Now, they're a good example, I think, what it looks like to worship him in spirit, but maybe not so much in truth, because Jesus has already told them three times in Mark 8, 9, 10, I will die for sin, and then after three days, I will rise again. And we've already been told that they were with Jesus. In the previous passage that we talked about, these women in particular were with him. They were ministered to him. They were there. They probably heard that teaching, that truth, that prophecy. And yet, these women, like Peter and the other apostles, Somehow they're just, it's almost too good to really believe. They just, they're not really there, but they want to, they want to honor him. And they're on their way up to this tomb. And they start to ask each other this question of, who's going to roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? See, what would happen for these tombs, the way they would be made is there used to be a, a stone kind of rounded out and it would be placed on a slope that then was carved in such a way that it would be guided down. So pushing the stone down pretty easy. Gravity helps you out, the stone rolls down. Pushing a stone up a slope, probably too big of a task for three women in the early morning to do as they push up, and they don't know who in the world is going to roll away this stone for us. But they keep on heading toward that tomb. And as they did that, as I was studying, I don't know why, but I just it was brought back into my memory in Genesis 22, 1 through 18. In Genesis 22, Abraham, uh, and previous in in the book of Genesis, he has been promised that through his son Isaac, the whole world is going to be blessed, and that he is going to be a nation multiplied through Isaac. And Isaac was born really of a miracle. Abraham and his wife Sarah were way too old to have children. Sarah was actually past her time for being able to have babies. And so when she heard God make that promise, she laughed. And God said, what are you laughing about? This is going to happen. I can do something that's totally impossible. And then this baby comes that they've been waiting for for forever. They've been struggling with infertility their whole life. And now there's this baby, and his name is Isaac. And God has promised to bless the world through Isaac, and that he's going to make Abraham a nation through his son. And this is his son, his only son, his son whom he loves, And after this takes place, in Genesis 22, God tells, an angel comes to Abraham and says, God wants you to take your son, your only son, the son whom you love, and he wants you to sacrifice him to the Lord. That that God is asking Abraham to take this son that he's waited so long for, that he's longed to have, and to kill his own son, And Abraham is a man of faith and a man of obedience. He's already shown his faith as when God told him to walk and just go and I'll give you a land. He walked and he went. So Abraham decides that he's going to obey God. And he takes his son, his only son, who he loves, and he starts to take him to the Mount Moriah 
where he's going to go and he's going to offer a sacrifice. And he and his son are walking and they, they go up with some servants and they leave the servants behind and it's just Abraham and it's just Isaac and he brings fire and he brings wood and he has a knife and Isaac looks around and says, Abraham, dad, father, where's the lamb? Abraham looks to his son and he tells him, God will provide himself a lamb. And he marches his son up. And he doesn't know what's going to happen next, but just by faith he just keeps going. Much like these women, they don't know. They just want to go and worship and honor Jesus. How is the stone going to be rolled away? They don't know how the stone's going to be rolled away. Abraham doesn't know what's going to happen to his son, but he takes him up there and he lays him out on the altar and he brings that knife and he gets ready to come down and from heaven a voice shouts, an angel of the Lord, and says, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. Genesis 22 for for uh, for no for now i know that you fear god seeing that you have not withheld your son your only son from me verse 12 hmm. and the angel comes through and he stops abraham from making this sacrifice and this is foreshadowing we know what has just happened in the book of mark jesus the one and only son of god was marched up a hill and there is wood and there is nails and God provides for himself a lamb and no voice from heaven cries out and says no, stop. Instead, the one sent from heaven cries out, forgive them for they don't know what they do, cries out, it is finished. And God blesses the world and every family of the world is blessed because Jesus came from that line of Isaac. See, they're walking and they're just trying to do what's right by faith even though they don't know what's going to happen next. The book of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 11, 17 through 19. It says, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall all your offspring be named. He considered that God was able to even was, was able even to raise him from the dead, from which figuratively speaking he did receive him back. See, Abraham takes Isaac up and places him on the altar because Abraham knows that God keeps his promises. And when God promised that he would bless the whole world through this boy, God is going to keep that promise even if that means God needs to raise him from the dead. We know what happens with the real and true only Son of God. Isaac is foreshadowing. He does die as a sacrifice for sin. And God keeps his promises and raises him from the dead. That is the beauty that we have. In verse 6 of our passage this morning, it it says, He has risen. The, The Greek there, we could translate it as, He was risen. Meaning God the Father raised him up from the dead. God did the work. As these women walk to this tomb and they don't know how is the stone going to be rolled away, God rolls away the stone. 
We're just asked to walk by faith, to worship our Savior Jesus. And that's what he does. See, what we learn from this passage is that because he is risen by God, that is the truth. The application that we can see from the passage is that we worship when we depend upon the Lord. The resurrection tells you you can depend on God even unto death because God raises the dead. 2 Corinthians 1 verses 9 through 10 tell us, Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that which was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. In your life, God is calling you to complete and utter dependence upon him. Why? Because he's the God who raises the dead. He's the God who keeps his promises. He's the God who will not let you down. That's the truth that God, in the promise that he is making to you. This is the beauty that we have seen. That we might set our hope on the God who will deliver us and deliver us again. If the Apostle Paul can be threatened of his life and be okay walking forward in that, and Abraham can threaten his own son's life because they believe that God raised the dead, how much more can we trust God in the difficulty of our circumstances? God calls you to a complete and utter dependence upon him. That's what it means to worship him. So no matter what happens in this life, you can depend on him because he is the God who can raise the dead. He is able and capable to do that. See, we worship when we exercise dependence, a dependence unto death because he was risen for our second truth to conquer death. Looking at verses five and six. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. There's so much irony happening Right? The ladies are heading where? Where Jesus is quote-unquote supposed to be. But he's told them three times that he's going to raise from the dead. And so in one sense, he's not supposed to be there. That if they believe by faith that his word was true, that he would raise from the dead, they shouldn't expect him to be in a tomb still. It's the third day he's raised, yet they're on their way and they're going to there. And then when they walk in, they're alarmed and surprised by something that Jesus has already told them is going to happen. He's going to raise from the dead. And so this young man in white, which both of those are idioms for an angel, the young man and the use of him wearing a white robe is, is a way for, for Mark to say that he was an angel and he's sitting on the right side of the tomb. I think the only really significance of why is he on the right side of the tomb is to show us you don't make up really intrinsic details when you're just making it all up. Like, I don't know, we walked in, he was just sitting like right there, like on the right-hand side. He was just there, and we were really alarmed and terrified, and we, we saw him be there, and he says, do not be alarmed. And he says these things that are so beautiful if you understand what's happening in this gospel. Their Savior is supposed to be dead. He's supposed to be laying there wrapped in linen. They're expecting to see a corpse, but instead is a young man dressed in white. And he says to them, you seek Jesus of Nazareth. I think when he gives that title to Jesus, he's placing him in human history. He's from a real place at a real time because this resurrection 
really happened. You seek him who was crucified. You saw it right, ladies. He was crucified. You saw from a distance that it was him nailed to the cross. It was him crying out to God. You saw him. You're right. And he was laid in this place that you saw him be laid down, looking back at 1547. They know they're in the right spot. But this angel tells, he has been risen. He's not here. Death is conquered. The tomb is empty. Jesus is nowhere to be found. He's not where he's supposed to be because he's exactly where he's supposed to be. He has risen. He has raised. And God has done it. And sin and death are conquered forever. We see in the book of Matthew, we read it earlier, and I'm going to read it again, verses 1 through 6 in chapter 28. It says this, Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And listen to what happened. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come see the place where he lay. The earth quaked, the rock split, and the curtain was torn, and the dead rose from their graves when Jesus died. The earth quaked, the angels descended, the temple, his body, was rebuilt when he rose, and death was put to death forever. 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty five says to us, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The resurrection matters for your life because you need to know that this is not the end. That there is a literal resurrection coming. And when you die, you will be raised up with him forever. And that's really my question for you this morning. Christian, are you planning to live forever? Now, Obviously, I don't mean in this mortal body, in this place. So far, the statistics are clear. 100% of people die. But the promise is that you will be raised again if you are found in Christ. This should radically impact everything. This should change everything about how we live. See, we worship God, that second application point, when we live in light of eternity. When we plan to live forever. What I mean is you're not living for this place here and now because you know this is a vapor. This is just a moment. We are pilgrims passing through. This place is not my home. What does it look like to live in light of eternity? What does it look like to plan to live forever? When you choose to downsize here so you can invest in the kingdom of God, you live in the light of eternity. When we place our hope in Christ and not in our spouse, you live in light of eternity. When we take a deep breath in the faith of disappointment, 
because we know this is not the end. You live in the light of eternity. When we dream about being useful in the kingdom of God and stop dreaming about material wealth and better circumstances, when personal fame, respect, and adulation fade in the background because you know that one day every knee will bow and tongue confess, not to you, but to Jesus who is Lord, you live in the light of eternity. And when you make war with sin because you know that the battle is already won, you live in the light of eternity. You know that that this is not the end. Death has been defeated. Sin is in the grave. Christ is risen and his tomb is empty. We worship God and we live knowing that this is not the end. And we plan to live forever. And we decide I'm going to make every moment of this temporal life count. Not for me and not for the moment, but for Christ and his kingdom which will last forever. That's what it means to live in light of eternity. This radically impacts everything. This changes your marriage. This changes your parenting. This changes your education. This changes your workplace. Because you know this is all temporal. That you're preparing to worship God forever. And that's the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That it is changing and it is different. That we get to know that in the midst of hardness of life and the harshness of life, when the kids are sick, when our bodies are failing us, when people sin against you, when your dreams don't materialize the way that you thought they were going to materialize, when life just isn't quite as good as you thought it was going to be, when you lose your job, All those things mount up and the financial pressure presses in. We have to ask the question, do we live in light of eternity? Do we know that this is not the end? Can we be honest when we sing that song? Because he lives, all fear is gone? Is it really? Or does disbelief creep in and the sting of death have its way? because we struggle to functionally believe that the tomb is empty, that your eternity is secure. This is really good news. It'll change your life as we learn to do that. And it's too good of news to be kept to ourselves. See, we see finally that he is risen, that we might go and tell the world. In verse 7, the angel tells them, But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. There's this trace of redemption and beauty of forgiveness of sin right there in verse 7. But go and tell his disciples and Peter, the disciples who fled and abandoned him. Peter, who denied him three times, even after he promised he wouldn't do it. The angel is saying, go and tell them. Make sure they know that I've conquered their sin, that I am alive. And just like I promised in Mark 14, 28, I'm going to go before them to Galilee, so tell them to come and meet me there, that even though they failed me, I still want to see them. 
because I love them. He's going to restore them. He's going to redeem them. And that's the truth that we have, that when we sin and when we fail, the resurrection speaks to us, and it says that Jesus has paid the price, and your sin is laid to death, and that you can be redeemed and renewed and restored. Because he goes before us, and he tells them to do that as well. Now, it's so interesting, as in Matthew 28, which we read, Luke's gospel in the book of Acts, we have the women going, and they tell them, and even if they don't believe them at first, in John's gospel, John and Peter race. Apparently, John's faster. He gets to the tomb. They see it. They open up. What we see at the end is that they go, and they tell everybody, and there's thousands of people coming to know Jesus in, in the book of Acts, in, in Acts chapter 2. It's this amazing thing, but for some reason, Mark tells us something a little different. Mark ends his gospel in a different way. In verse 8, he says, And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. End of gospel. Not exactly the fairy tale ending that we're used to. That doesn't sound like much of a win. Jesus raises from the dead. I mean, the whole stinking gospel. Jesus is telling, he can't keep people from telling them about him. He heals people and he says, don't tell anyone, but they go and tell anybody anyway. He casts out demons. He says, don't tell anyone. It's not my time yet. And they go tell other people anyway. And now they're said, hey, go tell everybody. And they're like, no, I don't want to. Don't tell anyone. I want to call back to your memory what Mark, one of the themes that Mark has been teaching us throughout the entire book. And that is this, is that faith precedes sight. Faith precedes sight. That all throughout the book of Mark, faith is what is present when these miraculous signs occur and happen. And Mark, I think, is trying to write to these Roman Christians who don't see the resurrected Jesus. And he is saying to them, and he's giving them a message, seeing the body of Jesus is not what makes you bold. Seeing the resurrected Jesus is not what's going to push you to go and tell the world like you know you're supposed to. Faith. And the resurrected Jesus is what will push you to go and tell the world. Not just sight. In John chapter 20, verses 24 through 29, we read this. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and I place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. That's what Jesus calls you to today. He calls you to believe in the literal resurrection of Christ, though you have not seen. 
He calls you to go and fulfill the great commission of Matthew 28, verses 19 through 20, which read, Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The truth is this. We will not go just because we see. We go because we believe. And blessed are those who believe and have not seen. I think Mark is writing this gospel to people like me and you. And he's writing this gospel and he's saying, look, just because they saw didn't make them faithful. But faithfulness will lead us to seeing and knowing that Jesus is the Christ. And that's the call, is to be faithful. And in that, your faith being strengthened, God will encourage you, and he will testify and prove himself to you over and over in your personal life. That's the promise of what we see. See, this makes us a better worshiper to go and tell, because we worship when we go and tell others. Pastor John Piper famously has said, missions exist because worship doesn't. Here's what he simply means by that. We go because people aren't worshiping the one and true God in those places. You go and you share the gospel with your neighbor because they're not worshiping the one and true God with their life. And through the proclamation of the gospel that only Jesus has come and only Jesus can save sinners from sin, you make more worshipers of the one and true God by his power and his strength through the the proclamation of his true story. So we worship God when we are faithful to God and we go and proclaim that good news to other people. We are set on seeing God be worshipped in all the world. And because that is true, we go. We send, we go, or as also gets said, we disobey. That's the call. That's why we pray for our missionaries. That's why we give our money to these causes. That's why we do these things. That's why we do evangelism training in your community groups. That's why we encourage you to pray for the lost people in each other's lives because that's the call that Jesus has made to us. It's even though we have not seen that we might go and believe. What we see this morning is God has been risen from the dead that he might be worshipped as the one and only true God and Savior. We worship God. We see that it is him who raised up Jesus and therefore him alone who we can depend on even unto death. We worship God when we plan to live in the light of eternity because we know death is conquered and we know this is not the end. And we finally worship God when we go and tell that good news to other people. When we decide to live faithfully to the one and true God. That is what we do. I pray this morning we look and we are encouraged by the power of the resurrection that with God's help we might become better worshipers of our Lord. Let us pray. Father, we love you. You are a good and kind and gracious God to us. We praise you that you rose up from the dead and that in you, Lord Jesus, we might have eternal life. 
that because of what you have done and what you have promised, that you will continue to deliver us even in this life. God, that we know that, that the true and literal resurrection is coming, but there are little microcosms and foreshadowing of those, that story in our everyday lives now where we are once dead in sin, you are making us alive to you. We are finding growth and comfort and strength and we are changing to be more like Christ. And in that, we are living in the light of eternity to be more and more like you. Help us, God, to put our faith and trust in you Help us that because you live, we can believe that all fear is gone. We ask this in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.